But understand, the doctrine of predestination is God, when He saves you, after He saves you, His unfailing commitment, His unrelenting, unending commitment to make you like His Son. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have come to the part of chapter 8 that is familiar to most Christians. As we pick up in our message, The Providence of God, Pastor Brogy reminds us that whatever happens in the life of a believer is under God's control. Even in suffering, the Holy Spirit is interceding to the Father on our behalf. So sometimes, you know, you pray for a person, and I think, Lord, this person is so valuable to the kingdom of God. If you could give them just a few more years, if you could just give them a few more years to serve us, it would be so wonderful. How many of you, by the way, have ever faced a situation where you've prayed and you just didn't know how to pray? Raise your hand, would you? Yeah, virtually all of us here, virtually all of us. And so sometimes we are in good company with the Apostle Paul in our ignorance, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, there are times when I know exactly how to pray. There's no mistake how I should pray because God has spelled out in his word how I should pray. But Paul encourages me with his own personal story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 of his own weakness in prayer. When God gave him that thorn in the flesh, if you remember, three times he prayed that God would heal him. Now, if Paul knew how to pray the first time, he would have said, God, don't heal me. Just give me added grace to deal with this thorn in my flesh because I know it's not your will to heal me. But he didn't know how to pray that. He didn't know that that was the will of God. And so three times he said, Lord, remove this thorn from me. And finally, God showed him that it was not his will. Finally, the Lord in essence said, Paul, I want to accomplish something in your life. And for me to accomplish it, you need this thorn. And you need to know that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your own weakness. And interestingly, that word for weakness in 2 Corinthians 12 is the same word for weakness here in verse 26. The Spirit helps our weakness when we do not know how to pray as we should. And so Paul is not simply writing by divine inspiration. He's writing by personal experience of what happened to him six years earlier. Even the great apostle Paul, at least on one occasion, prayed the wrong way. You say, Pastor, do you believe that God answered Paul's prayer? Yes, I did. I believe he answered it. You say, well, the thorn remained. No, I believe uh, God specifically answered it. Why? Because his heart was to do the will of God. That's why you pray in the Spirit. You can only pray in the Spirit when you are right with God when this clarity between you and your fellow man. And so when you pray in the Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes alongside. And so God the Holy Spirit goes to God the Son. And He said, Lord Jesus, you know Paul wants your will. But you also know that Paul would be better off with a thorn in the flesh so take Paul's prayer to the Father and ask him to keep that thorn in Paul's life. And so God the Son would have, might have responded to the Spirit. Yes, I will do that. I will take to the Father the need for Paul to continue to have this thorn. It's, it's a beautiful picture. Now, Paul wanted a yes, but God said no. 
But knowing that Paul's heart was right, God translated his prayer. In Paul's weakness, he didn't know how to pray as he ought. And God took it to the Son, who in turn took it to the Father. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity at work in our prayer. Maybe I can illustrate it in this way. Suppose you were to take the three-phase power that comes into this building from the electric company. Somehow you're able just to clip open one of those wires and hook your toaster up to it. And you put down the dial. What would happen? Man, that toaster would literally melt. But the power company, I'm told, has an instrument called a transformer. And it takes that great power that comes through on the lines and it makes it right. It drops the voltage to acceptable levels so your toaster can handle it in the rest of your home. Well, your prayer life in many ways is the same way. The power of our prayers is sent through a transformer. And let me liken for just a moment God the Holy Spirit to that transformer. And so when we pray for things because we are truly seeking the will of God and yet we don't know what the will of God is or maybe we've misunderstood the will of God, God takes that prayer by the Holy Spirit and He transforms it as He intercedes for us and as He goes to God the Son. It, again, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. He takes our prayer and He makes it into a form that is acceptable to the Son who takes it to the Father. Now, He does it in a way, notice, with groanings too deep for words. For groanings too deep for words. And so, while God the Holy Spirit works in the court of our heart, God the Son works in the court of heaven, and both are involved, every member of the Trinity, as we pray. Now, if you were here for our Wednesday night series on spiritual gifts, the last thing we covered was the sign gifts, and we looked at, among other things, the gift of tongues. And this is a favorite verse that some of our charismatic brethren use to justify why they should speak in tongues. When uh, they talk about tongues, they say, well, these ecstatic utterances are just groanings of a sort that the Spirit of God is doing through me. I don't think so. Listen, if you read the one passage in the New Testament, Acts 2, where tongues is described, it's a real language, words that can be potentially interpreted. In fact, some of your translations don't say with groanings too deep for words, but it says the old King James, if I remember, groanings inexpressible or groanings unspoken. Whether your Bible says too deep for words or unexpressed or inexpressible or unspoken, interestingly, the shortened form of the same word is used and translated in the Bible dumb or mute. Literally, the Greek says with groanings word wordless. The point Paul is making it's not that these prayer requests could not be put into words, but that they are not put into words. It is not so much that they are inexpressible as much as they are unexpressed. And of course, the one doing the groaning here is very clear from the grammar. It's plain in our English Bibles. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who's doing the groaning, who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, the word here for groan means a deep sigh or to long after. Now, some of you ladies have a picture of this. You know, your husband, he kind of communicates and groans and grunts sometimes. But when you live with him long enough, you know exactly what that groan or what that grunt means. Now, I'm not saying we should do that. That's just what we do sometimes. But again, this verse is an amazing picture of the Trinitarian uh, prayer life, uh, how God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father are all involved. And this word groaning is used only in one other place in all of the New Testament. In Acts 7, 
Remember in Acts 7, just before Peter is stoned, Peter, Stephen, is stoned, and he uh, defends Jesus as Lord. And by the way, if you're trying to get a handle on the Old Testament, just study Acts 7. It's an overview of the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. It's a beautiful, beautiful sermon, one of the most powerful sermons recorded in all of the Word of God. And he recalls that occasion, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights with Dr. Larry, how Moses was met at that burning bush. And he quotes, he says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people, God speaking to Moses. I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. Same word used only this place. I've heard their groans and I have come down to rescue them. In other words, the burden, the oppression of the Israelites was so great, sometimes all they could do was that's how heavy their burden was and God the Holy Spirit shows his great love for us that love that Paul says has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and that his burden is so great for us sometimes he just groans there's a certain mystery to it but there's a certain encouragement that comes with it so we're surrounded by a groaning creation. We ourselves groan within ourselves, and God the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf, but he's not done yet. Notice verse 27. And he who searches the hearts. Now, precisely who is he who searches the heart? Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to God the Son, and that's clear from the rest of the verse. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us in the court of heaven, there is one intercessor with God between God and man, Christ Jesus. And in the near context, if you look down in verse uh, 34 here of chapter 8, it says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So clearly, it's the Lord Jesus who searches the heart, who knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So God the Son has x-ray vision, and He is searching your heart today. He knows everything about the person sitting in your seat. He knows what you're thinking about. He's no, he knows what, what you've been uh, chewing on as I've been preaching. He knows what you think about me. <laughs> I wouldn't want to hear some of those thoughts. Uh, he knows what you're thinking about this verse of Scripture. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He sees right through the clear glass of your heart. Now, some of us probably wish it were stained glass. But there's nothing hidden from his sight. He sees everything. And why is he looking at your heart this morning? To find out your faults? He already knows what those are. He's not looking for faults and failures and the fears that you may have. He is looking to intercede for the saints according to the will of the Father. Listen, if you can get a hold of what this verse is saying about the work of the Trinity in prayer, it will change your prayer life. It is liberating. Now, that's the providence of the Spirit in prayer. Secondly, I also want us to think about the providence of the Father in particulars, the providence of the Father in the particular circumstances of your life. Notice verse 28. I suppose it's one of the, my top 50 favorite verses. Many of you have it memorized. If you don't, you should memorize it. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now, verse 28 gives us a picture of the Father's providence as it operates every day in your life. And there are several truths that we want to observe about God's providence from this verse. First, let's think about the promise. It says, and we know. It does not say, and we wonder, and we pray, or and we imagine, or and we desire, and we guess, and we think. No, he says, and we know. And the word is oida. It means an unshakable confidence, an unshakable knowledge. You could paraphrase it. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt if we put it in an English idiom. Now, please understand the promise of Scripture that God gives you in this verse can do you no good and do me no good unless we claim it by faith. Because without faith, taking God at His word, it's absolutely impossible to please Him. You have to claim it by faith. When you discover there's a lump in your body and you don't know if it's benign or malignant, you have to claim this promise. When you discover that your child has been in some kind of a car accident, you have to claim this by faith. When you are the victim of assault or racism or robbery or some experience that is too tragic for words to even describe, you have to take this verse by faith. And we know some of you could claim this verse this morning and it would begin to revolutionize your marriage and heal a marriage that you thought was unhealable. Some of you can claim this verse to help love some people that you think are unlovable. Some of us need to claim this because of the frustrations and interruptions that constantly come into our life that from God's perspective are really not frustrations and interruptions. So there's the promise, but beyond the promise, think about the plan here. God has a plan and it's His plan and not our plan. I want you to notice, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, not some things. But all things in the millions and millions and millions of circumstances that will happen to you in this life. If a mosquito bites you on the arm, if a cold wind hits your cheek, everything, all things, it's a great promise that comes from a great God. There's no such thing as happenstance for the Christian. Remove the word luck from your vocabulary if you are born again. Don't say, I was lucky. That's an insult to the providence of God Almighty. There's no such thing as luck. All things, big or small, good or bad, spiritual or unspiritual, are filtered through the providential hand of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together. He does not say that you will see all things working together. Sometimes you do in hindsight, but sometimes even in hindsight you have no idea what God is doing. Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly, we only know in part, but God sees everything and God knows in full. Years ago, my dad sent me a package through the mail and it was a uh, crossword puzzle, uh, not a crossword, a jigsaw puzzle with 800 pieces. And I felt a certain obligation to put it together with my children because my dad looked so hard to find one with a a biblical motif and he, he thought we would enjoy that. And I looked at that, and we dumped out the box, and I thought, we'll, we'll, we'll never get this thing together. But, you know, we got the corner pieces, we found those first, and then you began to find the straight edges, and after a while, the whole thing came together, and it was a beautiful puzzle. Now, sometimes when you go through frustrations that overwhelm you or confuse you or even depress you, sometimes you can't even find the corner pieces. 
You can't even find the straight edges. But if you view these things as coming independently of the hand of God, then you're not going to respond in faith as we should. God sees infallibly with a completed picture that is in mind that all things are working together for good. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 28, Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33, this is certainly a link to this verse. Let me read that verse to you. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. God's judgments, God's wisdom is unsearchable. It is unfathomable. You cannot fully plunge to the depths of the wisdom of God Almighty. And so you have to rest by faith that He is in control. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Please notice the verse does not say that God causes all things to occur. Because God is not the author of evil. The prophet Habakkuk says your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The apostle James wrote, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Nor does the verse say that all things are good. If someone breaks into your home and robs you, if someone rapes your spouse, that's not good, that's an evil. So precisely, what does Romans 8.28 teach? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It teaches that everything is working together for our best interest. See that those two words, work together, it's one word in the original. It's the Greek word, synergeo. We get our word, you can hear it, synergism from it. You know what synergism is? I looked it up in the dictionary this week. Here's Webster's. It says, the joint action or agents or conditions or circumstances brought together that the total effect is greater than the sum of the individual effects. Romans 8.28 tells us that there is a working together, there is a synergism, and the events and the circumstances of life, because God has a greater purpose in view, and namely, it is our good. When my grandfather, Patrick Sweeney, died, he was 86 years old, the same age my mother is this morning, or actually in a a week. And uh, one week before he died, God gave me the opportunity to lead him to Jesus Christ. It's like God kept me alive, or kept him alive until Carl Brogy received Christ, because I was the only one in his 86 years who ever shared the gospel with him. And he bowed his head and he received Christ. And a week later, he died. And when he died, you know how it is. You go through the house and there was this big clock that sat up in his mantle. And it sat there for years. And it was usually never wound because it just just didn't work right. And nobody wanted it. And so I got it. And I took it home. And for over 30 years, it sat in my bedroom up there in the third floor of where my parents lived and until my dad died and eventually my mom moved to another place. And we cleaned out that house and eventually that old clock went into the garbage. Now, as a young man, I tried to fix that clock. I took the back off and watched some of those gears moved. And I figured, well, if nothing else, it tells the right time at least two times a day, right? So anyway, uh, some of the gears were big and some were small and some moved one way and some faster and some slower, but some actually went in reverse order. And if you don't understand clocks, and I certainly didn't, I thought, man, this doesn't make much sense. This guy must have been on drugs when he put this thing together. No, it doesn't work. 
I mean, some of the wheels are moving in the opposite direction as the hands should be moving. No wonder it doesn't function well. I just didn't understand the purposes. Listen, some of you came here this morning and you feel like you were having a very, very bad day. Some of you feel like you just finished a very, very bad week. But from God's perspective, in His synergism, He wants to pull the circumstances of life together and work them out for a good purpose. They are somehow working together for good. And so from God's perspective, you may actually be having a very, very good week and a very, very good day because He promises from His Word that He works all things together for good. Again, not everything is good, but everything is working ultimately for our good. Now, prosperity theology maintains that the good is either physical healing or physical wealth, and that if the sinner has enough faith to believe it, that you can be wealthy and healthy and kept from a lot of suffering and harm. And if you're not, it is a problem of your faith. That borders heresy. In fact, it is heresy. But it fills auditoriums, and it makes people feel good. But I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to tell you the truth. But the truth should make you feel good. Because it's liberating. Before we're done with this chapter, he's going to talk about persecution when we come down to verse 35. And he's going to tell us even in persecution, God's love is being shown. And in the adverse circumstances of life, God is working everything for good. That's his ultimate plan. Now, please understand the promise and the plan can easily be misunderstood and misapplied if you don't understand the people to whom the promise and the plan is given. This promise, this plan is qualified for certain people. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He's talking about people who know the Lord. To those who are called according to His purpose. Now, it may be true, and I think it certainly is, that there are times when God And the life of the unbeliever works things together for his good because God wants to bring that person to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the Protestant reformers referred to as common grace, that common goodness that God shows in the details of life. And so Jesus can say, he, the Lord, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But please don't miss the all things as it's related to God's people. He's not talking about lost people, people who've never received Jesus as Lord. You know, and you will hear lost people say, well, you know, everything has a purpose. Where do they get that thought from this verse? Or some of them will even say, well, you know, the good book says everything's going to work out okay. But that's not a promise given to lost people. It's a promise given to God's people. In fact, if you have the King James, notice it translates it just a little bit differently. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called. Now, the word the, the article, is not there in the original Greek. But the translators of the King James put it there. They made it a little more wooden, but it's illuminating because they want you to understand that this is not a verb in English. This is actually an adjective in Greek. And so they put the called because God is not referring to anybody and everybody, but to those who are the called of God. He's speaking here of believers. 
So there's the providence of the Spirit in prayer. There's the providence of the Father in the particulars of life. Third and finally, there's the providence of the Son in predestination. The providence of the Son in predestination. Now, if we really want to understand verse 28, we have to examine verse 29 to understand the purpose that God has in view. If God works all things together for good, then what is that good that He is working for? Well, certainly He is working for our good because we're His children. And God in His goodness, sometimes because He recognizes that we are self-absorbed or independent or self-reliant, needs to bring some things into our life to refine us and to make us dependent and more like Jesus Christ. So certainly part of the good that God brings involves both the blessings and the trials of life. But he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for, in other words, let me explain, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I can't wait to get to the next sermon in this series. We're going to talk about predestination. For those whom he foreknew, and by the way, I can hardly wait to see what I'm going to say. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election are often mixed up and brought together, but they are actually technically, biblically, two distinct separate teachings in the Bible. Most of the time when people talk about the doctrine of predestination, they're thinking, well, God saved some to go to heaven and he made others to go to hell. Now, I'm going to show you that God did not predestine people to go to hell. And you're just going to have to wait for that. And I hope you will come with an open mind. Now, my car will be gassed out in the front lot. I'll be ready to leave because I know you'll want to stone me, some of you. But we'll love each other through it. But understand that it's kind of like um, it's kind of like the word charismatic. You know, we talk about charismatic Christians. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about those Christians typically who say speak in tongues. But in the truest sense. All Christians are charismatic, right? Because the word charisma means gift. And if you know your Bible, you know that every born-again, blood-bought child of God on their spiritual birthday is given a special gift by the Spirit of God in which to serve the people of God. So in one sense, we're all charismatic Christians, but we use that in a broad sense to refer to a particular brand of Christianity. Or sometimes we use the word uh, predestination to refer to the doctrine of election. But the two are different. Now, God elects people, and we're going to see. That's not an issue. No one debates whether God elects. What they will debate is how does God elect? On what basis does he elect? And that's what we're going to explore. But understand, the doctrine of predestination is God, when he saves you, after he saves you, his unfailing commitment, his unrelenting, unending commitment to make you like his son. That's the good that God is after. That's the good that God was after in this past week. Some of you were, were stressed and God was after a good in your life. And so there is a meeting of your good and God's good, and it's to make us like his son, which will ultimately be seen and completed when Jesus comes back. Your life circumstances, when given over to God, are able to help you become more conformed into something God can use. All things working together for good can many times have a negative physical impact on you, while greatly benefiting you spiritually. Today's message is entitled, The Providence of God. You can find it using our Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy. It's available at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store, as well as our website, searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you need a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. That's 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at the providence of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.